Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Welcome back, everyone, to Patriot Coalition Live. I'm Jason Morocek. Thanks for joining me today. Our goal is to create a timeless resource to teach about the U.S. Constitution and the proper role of government, the importance of America's Judeo-Christian heritage, and how to defend against threats to our republic. But before we get into today's topic, I want to talk to you about something that you can do today to begin rooting out one of the major sources of corruption in America. This source of corruption is what we call the three-headed beast, mainstream media, big tech, and big business. These mega corporations are actively undermining our liberties through censorship, canceling, and destroying livelihoods because they don't like dissent, and they don't like people who share truths which threaten their power. Now, earlier this year, Google, Apple, Amazon Web Services, they all canceled Parler or stopped giving access to Parler. Social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter regularly suspend accounts when they don't like their posts. So why continue to send your money to Amazon when they're canceling and censoring those who stand up for liberty, when you can spend your hard-earned money with freedom-loving companies who share your values and your principles? Well, that company is conservativeeconomy.com. We have tons of companies to shop from with over 3,300 categories of products, with more being added every week. So chances are you're going to find what you're looking for at conservativeeconomy.com. If you shop at a business that you love and you think that business would be a great fit at conservativeeconomy.com, go to our contact page and let us know. If you own a business, go to the sell here link at conservativeeconomy.com and tell us about your business. Again, that website is conservativeeconomy.com. Please check us out today. Okay, so let's get into today's episode. Uh, the title for today's episode is Article 1, Section 8 the limited powers of Congress. So we've been doing a series on Article 1, Section 8, and this is part five. Now, as a review, Article 1 in the Constitution is all about Congress, what they can and can't do, their powers, you know, the limited powers as we're talking about today. And so Article 1, Section 8 describes those limited powers, or sometimes you might hear them enumerated powers of Congress. Today, we're talking about Article 1, Section 8, clauses 11 through 14. Now, remember that the temporary loan of authority that we, the people, give to Congress to create laws that we then must all live by is one of the most sacred authorities that we can entrust to them. Therefore, the part of the Constitution where we define those powers must be one of the most important sections in this brilliant document. This impacts just about every aspect of our lives. And by that, I mean, you know, just try to think of an area of your life uh, that is not impacted by national legislation. And it's usually in a bad way and is usually accomplished without regard to the authority that we, the people, granted to Congress. It's one of the most abused sections in the entire Constitution. So having said that, having kind of set the stage, uh, let's dig into these clauses. So Clause 11 from Article 1, Section 8 of the, our Constitution. It says, the Congress shall have power to declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal, and make rules concerning captures on land and water. 
So let's let's start with the the phrase, you know, declare war. Now, originally, this was actually um, they started when they proposed this clause in the Constitutional Convention in 1787. They actually started with the the phrase "make war, not declare war." And as they started discussing it, they ended up changing it the word "make" to "declare" in order to distinguish between the the authorizing of war and the conduct of war. So two totally different things. Um, and, and by when they said conducting war, it was understood that that was going to be part of the executive branch's authority. And there was also a discussion and a general understanding during that constitutional convention that repelling a sudden attack, a sudden attack on the United States did not require declaring a war. And again, that was something that they didn't want to bog down in Congress, but they wanted to keep in the executive branch because he doesn't have to get, um, you know, a, a rule by consensus, if you will. Okay, so that's the, the declaring war part. And again, that is a uh, distinct power that Congress has. The president cannot declare a war. The judiciary cannot declare a war, independent states, etc. Only Congress can declare that war. So let's talk about one of the, the few terms of art that you will find in the Constitution. And by term of art, I mean it was, a, it was something that was meant, um, and it meant something at that time, uh, and it was something pretty specific. And we talked about one in the last episode uh, when we talked about the law of nations. Well, this is another one. It, it grants Congress, article, uh, sorry, Clause 11 grants Congress the right to grant letters of mark and reprisal. So mark and reprisal was a, a, a tool that was used, um, you know, throughout the, the, well, prior to the founding area, area, and then a couple times after the founding area. But its intent was to give permission from the United States to a private citizen or group to enter another nation's territory to take goods or people that are essentially equal in value to what that country had been had taken from us. Okay, so that's why you see the word reprisal in there or mark, which just basically kind of means the, the frontier of that country. So essentially, this is authorizing privateers. Privateers being, let's say, you know, um, people who own private boats who would go and take goods or capture prisoners from other boats. And they're essentially mercenaries, um, although we're not technically paying them other than we're allowing them to keep what they capture from those people or, or some portion of it. And, and back in, in the founding era, it was essentially a poor man's navy. We weren't very wealthy back then. And so uh, granting letters of mark and reprisal was one way that we could engage the private citizen and encourage them to go and raid, uh, the, let's say, the British vessels or um, you know, another country's vessels in order to disrupt their shipping and, uh, and their logistics chains. So historically, letters of mark and reprisal has been used as a naval strategy, but it's not necessarily limited to naval encounters. You know, so think about this, you know, mark and reprisal, if the, if the, if the principle is to grant uh, citizens the right to go and, re and capture goods and people that is equal in value to something that has been taken from us, um, that can happen on, on foreign soil as well. So think of, let's say, a kidnap and ransom or a prisoner exchange, right? If someone is holding one of our prisoners, um, and we can grant a letter of mark and reprisal to somebody who says, look, you, you can go and take one of their um, key individuals from their government or something similar. And then we can do a prisoner exchange, right? It doesn't have to be a full-blown war, although it could be, right? So, so that is what the, the 
the letters of mark and reprisal authorizes is what Congress is authorized to do. And that's what it means. Um, and so the, let's talk about the last part of that, and which is um, they're also able to make rules. Congress is able to make rules concerning the captures on land and water. Well, since all of America would essentially pay a price for the conduct of any one state that uh, they take, you know, outside of our borders or territorial waters, let's say, you know, again, uh, Georgia goes in and raids, uh, you know, Colombia, uh, and we don't want we don't want that to happen. And so, and they uh, and they take prisoners, or uh, they come across a boat that is in the waters, and they just basically sink it. They don't follow any sort of rules. Well, the entire United States could be uh, held liable for that, or they, we would be held responsible for that. So in order to avoid, you know, all the states doing different things uh, to other other countries' ships and, um, you know, other countries' personnel that may be, you know, they may find somewhere, the, the delegates authorize Congress, uh, they authorize Congress to make these rules for the captures uh, on land and on, on territorial waters, right? So the delegates essentially centralized or regulated these rules for capture to make sure that uh, they were done in, in a fashion that uh, the United States, um, made sense for the United States, not just individual states. Okay, so that was clause 11. Clause 12 reads, the Congress shall have power to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a longer term than two years. Okay. So first, to raise and support armies essentially means to authorize and pay for. So Congress is the only one that can authorize an army and raise money. Appropriation of money means to basically set aside the, the money. And that means obviously they have to receive the money from in the form of taxes or um, customs and duties and so forth. So Congress is authorized to raise and support an army. But the, here's the caveat, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for longer term than two years. So this is saying that Congress cannot set aside money to keep an army paid and equipped for longer than two years. They can raise a whole bunch of money, but they can't say, okay, we've raised enough to fund and equip the army for 20 years. And so now we have an army that doesn't really have to worry about where it's going to get its next meal. They know it's it, uh, their equipment and their meals are paid for, their salaries. And so uh, the, the problem with that is now you've got a large military force in our country that has money to sustain itself and is a threat to our liberty, right? Any armed force on our land is a potential threat to our liberty, especially when it can be mercenaries from another country, which is not prohibited by our constitution. It says they can raise armies. It doesn't say from where. We are accustomed to those armies being you know, from our citizens. Uh, and right now that is the law, but that does not necessarily, it's not restricted in the constitution to that it must be from our land. So in order to make sure, and in fact, historically, right, uh, we have used uh, mercenaries. And so this this clause and this caveat, meaning that the appropriation of money cannot be used for longer than two years, means that we're only going to spend money on the army for two years. After that time, to make sure that they're doing everything that we want them to do and that we still need that many soldiers, um, we'll then reappropriate more money for the next two years. Now, when I was serving the Army, um, even though I was an infantry officer, I did, you know, as most officers do, we spend time in uh, staff positions as well. And so I did some of my staff time as a deputy comptroller. So at that time, 
and I'm sure it's probably the same way today, um, budgeting was done in two-year cycles in the Army, right? When we say, okay, this is how much money we're going to need, we do it in two-year cycles. And this was to meet the requirements of that constitutional law. So uh, this, this case or this clause is a case where we were obeying today, we we're obeying the letter, but not the spirit of the law, right? The intent was not to have a standing army, but we do have a de facto standing army, even though it's only paid every two years. I mean, they are abiding by the letter of the law, but we have a standing army. So the good news is that, you know, the spigot can be turned off by Congress at any time. You know, the, the longest they can go is two years. And if we say, look, the, you know, they're abusing their power. Uh, they're not abiding by the regulations that Congress has set forth um, or whatever. You know, we want to draw them down. There's too many of them or there's not enough. You know, we can change that every two years. So that's the good news. You know, the other part of this is um, the threats, the threat matrix, if you will, the threat landscape has changed since 1787. And so it is probably more important today to have some sort of readiness all the time than it was back then when, you know, it would take people from, you know, across the Atlantic Ocean, you know, on a, a set of ships, a fleet of ships to get here. Well, now, I mean, they could be here in the matter of minutes, right? A matter of uh, maybe hours. And so the, that readiness time has to be built in. So, you know, fortunately, even though we're, we're abiding by the letter and not the spirit, um, right now it's being used for good purposes. Now, will that be always be the case? I don't know. And so maybe that deserves another look at, you know, whether or not two years is enough or we, we need another way to make sure that our readiness uh, is always at a high level. Okay, uh, so that's Clause 12. Clause 13 says, the Congress shall have power to provide and maintain a Navy. Now, for some reason, this major error in judgment slipped by our brilliant framers. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, beat Navy. Um, now, all kidding aside, this has the same effect as Clause 12, um, meaning it's doing the same thing for the Navy as we did for the Army, with the exception that there's no prohibition on the, a standing Navy right? They weren't concerned about having a Navy that's been authorized for multiple years and that's, you know, just exists in perpetuity. Why? Well, it's much harder for a Navy to infringe on our God-given liberties when their ships are anchored in harbors, right? It's kind of hard to infringe on, on those rights when they're out there. They've got to get to the land and they've got to, you know, take land in order to in infringe on our liberties, you know, from a, a wartime footing standpoint or even a, a peacetime, right? But in 1787, the best way to prevent a foreign nation from invading was advance notice and stopping their ships from arriving, which necessitated a standing Navy. So in order to make sure that we were secure from within or secure from other nations invading or trying to you know, uh, dominate or strip our liberties, it was, it was important that we had a standing Navy to kind of act as that early warning and engagement uh, force. Okay, and then the final clause that we're gonna talk about today is clause 14, article one, section eight, clause 14. This clause says, the Congress shall have power to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. So this is a carryover clause from the Articles of Confederation. Remember that the first attempt at, at constituting our nation, it's a starting our nation. Um, and so this clause grants Congress the sole authority to one, make rules about how authority is exercised um, over our land and naval forces. So, you know, what, what authority uh, can be exerted 
uh, on the army and the navy. Uh, that's from without and from within. In other words, you know, how are they able to authorize their authority to conduct their operations? And the second part that, you know, so it says to make rules for the government and the regulation of the naval and land forces. So the second part of that is the regulation. So Congress has a sole authority to determine how the land and naval forces must conduct themselves, you know, while they're, uh, while they're, while they're in existence. So in other words, what guideposts must they stay between when operating? Those are the regulations. Uh, and Congress has the ability to actually to, to make those. And if you are a, um, if you like to go and research stuff, you know, uh, Title 10 of the United States Code, that has a lot of the, the statutes that um, Congress has passed in pursuance of this Clause 14. Um, now, the... This, this is separate and distinct from actually the operations of the military, right? In which case, the, the, as we will we'll find out in Article 2, the president is the commander in chief. Uh, so he is the one that is actually running day to day. Well, not obviously him, but he's the one that's authorized. He's at the top of the food chain when it comes to um, what our military is doing at any given time. Congress is just giving those guideposts about um, what they have to stay between when they're actually conducting their operations. Okay, so that covers all that we are going to uh, to talk about today. So just to wrap up a quick summary, uh, we talked about four clauses. Clause 11 gives Congress the authority to, to declare war, uh, which leaves the president free to conduct the war uh, or repel attacks against the United States. This clause also gives Congress the authority to empower civilians with a charter to raid and plunder countries who have taken from us. Um, that's again, the letters of mark and reprisal. So the next clause, clause 12 was the one that authorized Congress to raise and pay for armies as long as it is only for two years at a time. So they may disband them every two years if necessary. Uh, next clause 13 was providing to, and maintaining a Navy. And then finally clause 14, we just talked about, um, provides Congress the authority to, um, set the, how the, uh, land and Naval forces, the army, the Navy, and so forth are governed and regulated um, while they're operating. So hopefully this uh, helps you understand these a little bit better. These are pretty straightforward, more so than some of the ones we've talked about. Uh, that's why we didn't spend as much time on them. Again, the, the constitution was written for the average person. Uh, it doesn't take an attorney. Uh, it doesn't take you know, somebody to interpret it for you. you know, I'm here only to share the, my experience and, and the amount of work that I have done just to researching it just because I'm a constitution nerd and I like to go back and look and, and, and see what the discussions were about when they actually came up with these things. Because a lot of times what you'll find out is, is somebody will say, oh, no, that's not what it says. That may be what the words say, but what it means is this. And they'll try to, to spin the words that are pretty clear. Um, and they will try to spin them to mean what they want it to mean in order to get what they want, right? And uh, and and the easiest way to dispel that, to uh, to rectify that, or to explain to somebody that's not the case, is to go back to the actual debates, what they were talking about, what was in their mindset, the the discussion that they had, the things that they tried to pass but weren't able to in the Constitutional Convention. The, this helps us understand the context and the original intent of what they are saying. Again, clear words, but for, for the average person who's just going to take it for what that says, that's great. But if somebody wants to twist it, 
those are the people that we have to be on guard against. And that's why we're going through this the way that we are. So that if you were to come up with a, for, against somebody who's saying, no, that's not really what it means, you'll have some information and some resources to go back and say, no, that's exactly what it means. And here's why. And, and, and you can point to where, uh, where those conversations um, existed in the Constitutional Convention. Again, all that information is on our website, patriotcoalitionlive.com. You'll find all of our episodes, and each episode has uh, the, the show notes. Um, we did just run into, I just found uh, a, a bug um, or a problem with our website where it was repeating the same episode notes every time. We'll go back and fix that as soon as we can. Uh, so stay tuned, and, and thanks again for your support. Speaking of support, um, if you'd like to support us, go to patriotcoalitionlive.com slash support, and your support is a big help to us. So if you're not already a regular subscriber, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts at places like iHeartRadio and Spotify and so forth. Um, so thanks again, and we'll see you here next time. Mm-hmm.